I can't say you enjoyed those early bits because the survivor was, you know, sometimes it was mum and I hugging each other crying at you know, 11 o'clock at night because we didn't know how we were going to pay the bill the next day. All sorts of said, listen, you're not, going to, you're not going to survive our rules or do any of our academia, so you better move on. So, yeah, I was expelled at, uh, at 17. And uh, that, that's when I moved down to everybody's horror, back down to Sussex, moved back in with my mother and said I was going to become a cabinet maker. And uh, I said, no, 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 it's not for me. You know, I've tried. I've failed, and I need to be in control of my destiny. I, I knew somewhere deep down that I just, just had to start from scratch and do something myself because measuring the success took a long time. I mean, it was such a long struggle. I mean, it was like a, like a jumbo jet taking off. There was a lot of concern because that was really, really tough. You know, those early days, just short of money, um, borrowed from friends and family. It was... I couldn't see the success as much as the fear of failure. I, I think I think that's another recurring thought that I just remember that turns around in the back of that mind somewhere. Um, it was the fear of failure. I am not going to fail. Yeah. It was emotionally shattering. Really? Oh, cry my eyes out. Really? Absolutely cry my eyes out. You know, on the one hand, I took a screenshot of the bank balance, which I sent to mum. Um, and but on the other hand... It was just, I don't know whether it was all those pent-up years of pain, you know, to get to, uh, what success? You do have your dancing on the ceiling moment, there's no doubt about that. Um, but also you realise what's important in life. I'm on a mission to help the world to see success differently. We're sharing the stories of our guests. I hope to inspire those that listen. This is the Different Hats podcast produced by H2 Productions. Hope you can join us on this journey. I just wanted to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Nostos, an authentic experience of Greece right here in the heart of Hove. In a world brimming with dining options, finding that one place that captivates your palate and heart isn't always easy. It's about more than food. It's the stories, the ambience, the slice of another world. This is the essence of Nostos, an award-winning Greek restaurant. With traditional recipes passed down through generations, each dish promises a story and a piece of heritage. And Nostos is more than just a restaurant, it's a community contributor. Each dining experience supports initiatives close to their heart, from local charities to cultural events enriching Brighton and Hove's social fabric. They also provide catering services, bringing Greek cuisine to your personal events. For a taste of Greece without leaving town, visit nostos-hove.co.uk. And when you do go, say Sam recommended the Feta Nests. Oh my God, they are amazing. Okay. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. My guest this week is without doubt one of the true Sussex success stories. After, after inventing his first product, an ergonomic writing board in 1991 in his mother's shed, the company found Impostrite now supplies workplace health and wellbeing products and services to over 30 countries worldwide, turning over in excess of 33 million and employ more than 200 people. Someone that is a true inspiration to many in the business community including myself. I'm delighted to welcome Ian Fletcher Price to the podcast. Fletch, how you doing? 
I'm very good, Sam. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Mate, it's great. Listen, great to have you on. And um, we was obviously chatting before we come up and sort of thinking, oh, we sort of met through various um, acquaintances that we, we've got. And uh, great to have you here and hopefully you're here to share your story. Looking forward to it. Mate, look, we're going to jump straight in as we always do. So as with anything, everyone's story starts somewhere, right? So I want to find a little bit out about in do our life in 60 seconds tell me a little bit about your childhood something about growing up the self shaped the man who sits in front of me today hmm, okay um i suspect it'll go back to the fact that i was at boarding school since seven and kind of having to fend for yourself and you're always surrounded by i felt peers that were better than me at nearly everything uh, i didn't find out till probably only a couple of years ago i'm dyslexic so, you know, you struggle your way through school and life and whatever, wondering why actually everything else seems so much cleverer and better than I am. Um, so the, the success stories from the school days of, of uh, it was only nine years, only managed nine years. The last year I was asked to move on um, were things like woodwork. You know, which I know is a ridiculous thing to say. It sounds like a sort of hobby. But actually, that was a formative part of my life. You know, and I eventually sort of won a woodwork prize at school, went on the stage in front of the whole school to receive it. But it was, it was a coffee table I made that's yeah. still a mum's. But it, it showed that I, I could be independent and actually do things myself. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was always, you, you were always looking for that, that peer pressure um, recognition. You know, they were clever at this or clever at that subject or better at sport or better at something I, I knew I wanted to be good at something had no idea what it was going to be <laughs> so in the early days woodwork would be something that stood out and then that yeah. led to sort of being asked to be the stage manager for the school productions and that kind of thing yeah. so the early practicality is a formative part of what I would right. say my life was let's deal a little bit like you said about boarding school and then and you found out with dyslexia so, so school life was you found quite tricky then no, or the academic side, side yeah, 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 was, yeah was a mystery to me all the way through yeah. you know it was a it was a real struggle and sometimes I battled through the subjects that are a bit better at maths and mm-hmm. physics and things uh, with, with less struggle but the, the others it got to the point where I sort of gave up mm-hmm. and in fact you know the, the, the seven O levels in old money <laughs> five C's and two B's um, was not a lot of return for the amount of money my parents invested in a, in a private education so. oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, it just goes to show though doesn't it? Like, I, I, I often I talk on pretty much almost every episode about the education system because everyone's got a different story around some people were really academic some people not so much and yeah. it's so interesting to find out about people, especially from like a, if, if you've been diagnosed with dyslexia, haven't you found that out later yeah. in life that actually the school, the way the education system's set up, is actually really archaic, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, I, I think it is better these days. Yeah, I have yeah, to yeah, say. yeah, sure, sure. Um, but back then, it was unrecognised. You yeah. were just, you know, you're a bit thick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just yeah. went down a lower set. <laughs> isn't that mental to, to think that you go that people are labelled at that young age? as thick or yeah like, oh you're a bit of a dunce or not intelligent enough and not, because they're measured just on one yeah. small thing where so I focused on the things I could which yeah. you know I knew I could make things do as practical the sport, swimming was a reasonably good swimmer yeah. so you know I, I got my own personal success and satisfaction from, from actually focusing on those things yeah. to the detriment of the others where it got to the point where it was untenable. You know, the school sort of said, Listen, you're not going to survive our rules or do any of our academia, so you better move on. Wow. So, yeah, I was expelled at, uh, at 17. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then what, 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 at that stage, and talk to me about that, when, 
what was your thought process about what you wanted to do for work or was it even then like the practical side or, or did you have a clue I had absolutely no idea I was I was denied going to um, uh, there was a specialist woodwork college which was Sir John Makepeace down in Somerset yeah. and I remember my father I'd asked to do woodwork O level and my father who was an accountant and a very staid pillar of society magistrate and all that sort of thing um, said I'm not sending you to private school to become a bloody carpenter and those were his exact words wow. And, of course, you know, I didn't take that very well. Um, but ultimately, I had the last laugh by creating a business <laughs> and making a product and turning it into a, a, a future success story. So, um, yeah, I had no idea. So I, I went to Hong Kong. Um, the, the, the school girlfriend at the time lived out there. And uh, I worked in the Vietnamese refugee camps. Wow. For a few months, which was really uplifting and rewarding. I'd never been on a plane. I'd never been abroad. Um, suddenly, I'm in in a refugee camp, looking after naught to five year olds, 150 of them. Wow. Um, and again, the practical side came through, and I think that might be a common thing today. Yeah, 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 um, sure. The practical side came through, whereby you know I was able to negotiate um, with the the, the the camp runners about how much uh, budget we got. And I was able to build them things, basic things like, you know, climbing frames and sand pits and all sorts of stuff like that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, ultimately, I would have probably still been out there. But the call came from home, get yourself back to the UK and get a job, son. Oh, so right. I was dragged back by my ear um, home and dad had some friends in the Lloyd's uh, insurance market. And I stumbled into that uh, in those days. That was We were in 1980 now. So no qualifications required, no insurance exams done, fell into reinsur- marine reinsurance broking. That was and, and that was that. That was nine years. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Talk to me about, like, did you enjoy that? Was it? Do you know, I loved it insofar as um, what few skills I had, I, I think, came to the fore. You know, I've always been a people person. Um, and broking is about going into the market, seeing the underwriters, persuading them that your particular contract is worth, you know, a bit of support. Um, and I, t- I took to it. Uh, did reasonably well. I uh, got headhunted from the first job uh, after four years or so. Went to the second one. So I was with Cedric's. And then I went to Willis, Willis Faber. Uh, really enjoyed Willis Faber. Created a new product there, funnily enough, that the directors didn't really want to uh, go down that path. And so I got I got sacked from the market. <laughs> yeah. And um, that was the sort of turning point where I thought, right, I, I need to be in control of my own destiny. So I'm, I'm 26 now. And um, I've sort of done nearly nine years in the market with a, with a degree of success. But actually, in the eyes of the big company and the directors and the sort of the impossible hierarchical level to penetrate, decided that wasn't for me. And uh, that, that's what I moved down to everybody's horror, back down to Sussex, moved back in with my mother and said I was going to become a cabinet maker. And uh, <laughs> much to the sort of, you know, um, concern of my mates in the market, it was like, don't be silly, Fledge. Come on, come back to the market. We'll give you a job. And I said, no, 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 it's not for me. You know, I've tried, I've failed, and I need to be in control of my destiny. I can't work for big companies. What, 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 did you, what was your dad's take on that? He was, um, being so conservative, uh, he was horrified. 
because A, I hadn't gone into a profession, which he'd always thought, you know, a, a, any, any offspring of his would have to go into a profession. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter whether it was accountant or whatever, but accountant would have probably been the first choice. So he was horrified. And at that stage, uh, it, was, it was a frosty relationship. Um, and, and do you know what? Rightly so. I think, I think you'd be protective of your 26-year-old, yeah. well-educated son that's had a, a modicum of success in a career that's turned his back on it, thrown it away to go and work in a garden shed and be a cabinet maker. <laughs> so I, 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 I totally understood it. There wasn't conflict from me telling him I was right. It was more I knew somewhere deep down that I just, just had to start from scratch and do something myself. Where, where, where does that come from, though? Like, have you ever looked at, where was that belief inside of you to go, I'm going to... I think, it, I think that's back to maybe a bit of the boarding school in my case. I wouldn't say necessarily for everybody. Um, I certainly at this stage would not have called myself an entrepreneur, would never have envisaged running a company. Uh, you know, the timeline is quite clear about that. I was very low on confidence, but there was a, there was a, a, a determination to sort myself out. And I think that was the, that was the boarding school part. You know, you the couldn't mope, yeah, the independence. You can't mope around a boarding school for long because you get bullied and whacked and you know shoved <laughs> in the corner. So you, you you have to stand up for yourself a little bit in that kind of environment, especially in those days. Yeah. You know, I think again, I think that's improved in time. But in those days, yeah, there was no feeling sorry for yourself. Roll your sleeves up and get on with it. Oh. Otherwise, you're going to have a very miserable you know, yeah. <laughs> existence. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I th- I think it was right. Come on. I'm going to get on with it. I'm going to make something. You know, that, that, that's good for the mind, good for the soul, making something. And um, that, that's where that started from. And that was so, but then, so let, let's talk about that part then where you're, so you've got it, you're in, in the shed and you're making, with a view, but I'm going to make stuff, I'm going to sell it, uh, yeah. uh, go out there, but create a business from that. That was the plan then? Or? That, was, that was the plan. Uh, again, no strategic, no strategic um, setup, no, yeah. no, no, no SWOT analysis or anything. The lucky break was a, a school friend who was fa- family friend, a couple of years older than me, was by now, um, he, he started as a doctor, he was now an osteopath, and um, he heard this story, and he said, um, I'll give you a commission, make me a sloping writing board uh, that I can sell to my patients. Because this was, remember, prior to computers. I mean, computers were around, but most people working at a desk did not have a, their own PC. Um, so he was treating people with neck pain and back pain, uh, and he realized that the old Victorian lectern attitude of sitting up straight to read and write was quite, uh, you know, a very sensible approach. Mm. And uh, there was no sort of product out there to do that. So I took that on as a challenge um, in a very informal way. Um, so in a couple of months, you know, just buying pieces of MDF and piano hinge and trying to saw small screws and double-sided sticky tape to stick the metal board on that magnets would hold papers in place and all these bits and pieces. So I was scurrying around Sussex, various different suppliers in and out of industrial estates, sourcing effectively the, the, the um, com- components for what became the Postrite Sloping Writing Board. So after two or three months, it existed, one. <laughs> um, and Simon was running a conference. Um, it was a medical conference on a Saturday in December um, for 300 delegates. That were at British Institute of Musculoskeletal Medicine, BIM. I can still wow. remember that. Wow, wow. Okay. And um, anyway, he was involved in organising it. And he said, right, come on, Flesh, we're going we're to exhibit. 
and I didn't I didn't know what a trade show was. I didn't know what exhibiting meant. So I turned up with the board. Um, I didn't even have a pen and paper. I didn't have a, any background graphics. And uh, he plonked me in this room with and there were a few other people with you know nice graphics and um, treatment couches and tens machines and all the things associated with therapy. And I'm thinking, well, what am I doing here? And the first coffee break at, at 10:30, out came these 300 delegates. And I was swamped because, of course, as I would now know, it was a new product. You know, it was a new kid on the block. What's this? I said, well, it's a posturite board. Where do we get them from? Well, I'll make them for you. Um, well, we want to sell to the patients. Well, that's fine. You know, um, let me know and I'll t- sell it to the patients. You know, it's so naive. I can't tell you how naive that day was. Wow. But the enthusiasm for the product was such that Simon and I went and had a beer across the road, you know, after the conference that evening, Saturday evening, early Saturday evening. And uh, we shook hands on setting Posturite up together. Wow. We had no idea what Posturite was going to look like. (laughs) It wasn't even spelt correctly in those days. It was um, spelt with a W in it, you know, because, of course, posture right. Um, But that looked a horrible word. So that W soon went uh, when I went to register the, uh, the, the company. And um, in fact, there's a funny story about that, because when I went to register the company, I didn't know how to do that. But fortunately, one of my cricketing mates was a solicitor. So, you know, went into him and he told me how to do it. And as I was doing it, I said, you know, on the P there, if I could put a little spine in, how would you do that? And he said, well, that's called a logo, old boy. So, (laughs) okay, (laughs) do we register that separately, trademark that? You know, and that that is honestly how naive, naive I was about business, you know. Didn't you know the difference between a logo and a, and a company registration? <laughs> but and, uh, some lots of people I've talked to on here, entrepreneurs, people have started that business. Sometimes that naivety is a bit of a superpower. Because right? how many times do you, would you look at something where you do sit down and you go, oh, things have got to be perfect and I'm not good. But where you're naive and you just go, well, we'll give that a go and that worked out oh that's good yeah yeah we'll just keep rolling with that that naivety sometimes is a, is a good I thing, couldn't right? agree more I mean I, th- I think I found myself you know certainly within the first decade you know s- several times sort of saying crikey if I'd have known it was gonna be this hard I would never have started really you know, Jen I, rem- I remember that thought process definitely so I think having that naivety you're quite right is sometimes a better thing you can know too much because yeah. there's so many how many people will talk about they sit down at a pub talk about ideas I've got this great idea Yeah. but that fear of actually when you go yeah but I've got to do X, Y and Z then I've got to do this and you go oh actually yeah that, and there's always going to be a problem there's always going to be yeah. a reason not to start something absolutely um, but taking that jump and it's so fascinating like to think I'm going to go and start something to get that break or whatever you look at it that that, that opportunity I guess to be there and and within them with them 300 delegates well, and have yeah. that enthusiasm I guess for the product as well yeah I had enthusiasm for the product and you know for the first couple of years I made them and yeah. uh, we were a single product company I say we you know it was me I persuaded mum to uh, get involved and answer the phone and do a little bit of secretarial work well she ended up being a linchpin you know 13 years later <laughs> but I managed to retire her for the second time in her life um you know, she was running about five departments, and she she, she would love to tell you. I mean, she's still with us, but she'd love to tell you that she was replaced by five people. You know, head of finance, head of customer service, head of HR. You know, you name it. I mean, she was she was just doing it all. And um, when she retired, we were probably turning over 
I would think about five million. So we 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 got it up to a critical state, and we were probably thirty five, forty people. Um, so she, you know, without her support and help in those days, it just wouldn't really have happened. So um, an, an amazing, an amazing thing to do with your mother at that stage. So you know, twenty six to to forty, really. You know, quite 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 a formative chunk of your life to then be thrown in you know with your mother you know literally you know we're we're very close yeah and uh, we were always close before we were close through that despite some fairly choice language sometimes i'm sure (laughs) um and we've remained close since so it's 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 been a nice story though that's that's amazing what like you said an amazing thing as it started to grow with the success side of it again i'll keep going back to your dad and just that because it Obviously, you had a mindset of what you wanted, what you thought he wanted yep. you to do, and then you've gone down that. But when it, you started to see that success, what was his um, take on I, that? I don't think the pride came till a lot later because measuring the success took a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was such a long struggle. I mean, it was like a like a jumbo jet taking off. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a long, long. You know, it, it took I think about eight years, seven or eight years to get to a million turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, in a thirty-year-old company 33 year old company whatever we are now you know seven or eight years just get your first million and and of course turnover doesn't even measure the business properly anyway but it is it's a good barometer of where you are um there was a lot of concern because that was really really tough you know those early days just short of money um borrowed from friends and family had a little bit from help from the banks, but of course, you know, they're not as hugely supportive as they should be. Yeah. We, I did have one amazing experience. This is so old school, but Barclays uh, went in with a probably after a couple of years, went into the family Barclays branch in Heathfield. Mike Pass was the name of the uh, manager, I still remember that name. And I had a fag packet business plan, and he gave an unsecured overdraft of £10,000. And we we would have, I doubt we were turning over more than £150,000 at that stage. But can you imagine that now? An unsecured overdraft (laughs) on the back of a business plan I'd written in in the kitchen that morning. Um, Computer says no, right? (laughs) Computer says no, yeah. It it was good old-fashioned banking. But he, you know, he saw something, saw enough, and actually were rewarded by the business, you know, um, going on to better things, yeah, and Barclays making their money out of us in the future years. So, um, yeah. Wow. Um, well, you, you mentioned there, especially those early years, some of the the, <coughs> the tough parts. And this is this is the great thing about sharing people's stories, and because people will look from afar when people who have maybe just met you or see the success that you have achieved and and think oh wow look how well he's done but that's 33 years right yeah. of, of, yeah. of graft and and building it up so and that's why i'm keen to always share some of the tough times and the challenges so if we if we delve into like done another life in 60 seconds i said if you could go back over them that period just give me a one challenge that you faced that Maybe and what you learned from that. Um, I, th- I think, I think running out of money, it was was probably the biggest challenge. Um, and uh, you know, going going to the professionals, asking for for, for help in that respect, mm. and being told no, and just just the belief that you know, people who are supposed to be in a position of, of knowledge aren't always right. Mm. 
you know, I just, you know, well, you're wrong. You know, I know this is going to be a success and you're supposed to be in the risk business and you're not lending us money. So then, you know, having the, it's, it's an awful thing to have to do to go cap in hand to friends and family. Mm-hmm. But I did it. And I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that I can grow this business. I'm convinced that, you know, that we're on the right path. The uh, appetite for health and safety in the workplace is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a, a reasonably good sector, you know, to be in. And seeing people actually write checks and lend you some money wow. uh, was very humbling, very humbling. Um, and, you know, I took great delight in paying those people back yeah, over the years, you know. And uh, it's funny because some, some that had done reasonably well in life sort of said, oh, oh that's, that's unusual, Fletch. Um, I, I don't normally get paid back. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you mean? I wouldn't have asked to borrow it if I didn't think I was going to be able to pay you back. Yeah. He said, well, not everybody does. In fact, not many do. You know, there's one, I won't name him, but there's one particular person who was very kind and generous to me in those early years when, yeah. when I did ask for some help, yeah. lent the money. And it's him I'm thinking of when I say, you know, when I paid it back, he said, that's, that's unusual. Wow. Well, I guess uh, a couple of things that you mentioned there, one about being a people person, and actually sometimes on paper, sometimes, again, back to the bank, computers, says no, that type of thing, but actually people buy from people in, in business in life and if people <coughs> I guess it's that belief in you you obviously had that passion for it and that belief back then that you were, was going to make it into a success and people bought into that right it was I couldn't see the success as much as the fear of failure I, I think I think that's another recurring thought that I just remember that turns around in the back of that mind somewhere um, it was the fear of failure. I am not going to fail. You know, I have to succeed at something. I can't. I've got nothing else to fall back on. Burnt my bridges in the in the you know reinsurance market. I've been out of that too long now. That's gone. You know, this has to work. And um, you know, it was like blind faith that you know whatever I did. And, and when it was tough, I, I just spent more hours. You know, longer days, more hours. I mean, we were literally working every 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 waking hour on the business. You know, we'd work in a day. I'd go out selling, well, making at the weekends, selling in the week, evenings, packing up the orders, you know, literally with the, with the duct tape, packing them up, labelling them, sending them out. You know, we'd often, mum and I would be up till midnight, you know, packing up the orders from that day that would then be collected the following morning and, and, and go out. Mm. And so every time it was tough, every time we were out of money, all I could think about doing was throwing more energy and more effort at it and more hours. You know, there was no pub, no sport. Um, you know, there was no no, no downtime at all, uh, just to get through crisis, the day to day crisis, basically. That's such a good lesson, like for people listening. I guess there's how many business owners we've all been there. I've been there, and go through it all the time. You got them ups and downs, and no, that. But where that resilience inside of you that to uh, you're saying it was more. The fact that I just didn't want to fail. Yeah, definitely. That, 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 was, that was a bigger was, driver. That was the bigger driver. Much bigger there. driver ever than thinking. Right at the end of this, you know, there's a there's there, there's some there's some money and or whatever it might be. The trappings of success. Or like. Never even thought about that. I don't think at any stage in the business was it about what I might get at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, it was always fear of failure, peer recognition. Um, you know, two or three of my very best mates from school. 
Um, one's successful farmer, another's been a successful lawyer, entrepreneur, what have you. You know, we still we still really tight. Mm. And when we meet, you know, I still feel judged in that company. Am I worthy in that company? And that that wanting to be wanting to be accepted um, as somebody who was capable and had made a decent fist of it. It was more important than anything else. That's really interesting about like the, the and we all crave it. I think I think we're all guilty of that to a degree. <laughs> that external validation, aren't we? We're, Nicely put. We yeah. we we all. Uh, I think I'd be lying if I sat here and said I, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to go and do my own thing. Yeah. Of, of course, there's and look, it's highlighted maybe even more so with social media now that we our lives on social media and there's that again you want that social validation whether it be sitting around from peers whether it be from family whatever that looks like there's that there's that external validation that we still crave but can you remember a point where you did feel that actually whether I've made it or I'm (laughs) at that point and I've I am worthy of being in that um I think, oh, there's no one point. Um, there was a massive, I don't know if we're jumping around uh, chronologically wise, but um, there was a big decision in 2005 when I decided to sell 20% of the business to the top 12 people that were in the company. And we were probably, you know, again, I think that coincided, uh, where are we? Yes, that coincided with probably being about 50 of us in the business at that stage. Um, and the reason was I had a six-year-old and a five-year-old, and it was a balance of life thing, whereby I wanted—I didn't want to be an absent father. Um, I think having been to boarding school and not really had a close relationship with my father, that had an ongoing effect about wanting to make sure I did it slightly differently. And that's not to criticise my dad, but I wanted to do it slightly differently. So it was—it was a two-pronged thing. It was getting the balance of my life right. But it was also locking in the 12 key people in the business so that we go through it as a team together and grow it together. Um, and I felt that only 80% of the business was going to be worth more in the long run than owning 100% and it being a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've always firmly believed that was a genius move for both mm-hmm. myself and for the business posturite. And also for the, the guys that actually backed me and yeah. um, and they, they they paid hard cash. You know, it was good old fashioned full ordinary A shares. Yeah. So they 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 went and borrowed from their families um, and whatever source they, they they could to actually buy the shares. Um, so we were genuinely in it as a team, and it felt like an equal team. It never felt like I was a you know all powerful eighty percent. We did everything together, and it was a collective group that went through from two thousand and five. To the ultimate sale in um, oh, it was 2019, I think it was mm. was the first part of the exit. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a that's a bit of secret sauce right there. I, I, I think you know getting getting staff engagement and equity is very much something I'm an advocate of. And, get, and I guess again, a subject I talk about a lot on here about culture, getting getting yep. that culture, getting people to buy into that. Not, one, obviously, they wanted to invest from a financial point of view yep. and sort of that, but actually, you've got as a leader, you've got to create that culture where people want to be part of something that you're building, right? Yeah, 
And talk to me a little bit about that. What did you, again, the naivety started a business and then where did you learn that on the, on the way about, okay, I'm going to, is it, was it you conscious of that? Going, I need to, I'm going to build this business. So we've got these people, good people around me and I'm going to build a strong culture. The values and that type of thing, was that in your mindset early on? Or? I think there's a couple of points there. I think, I think we were only four people up, up to that first, say nearly the first decade, you know, uh, me, mum, Carol and Norman. Um, but, but at that point when I, you know, had, uh, had a friend who was in strategy at PPP actually, which was an Eastbourne business, and uh, Lawrence did a SWOT analysis for us, which was again, still learning. That, at that time, that was the first time I'd heard of that. Um, and it, it culminated in replicating what I was doing. We needed another salesman. So I hired my first salesman based up in Manchester as it happens. And um, as bonkers as he was, he proved to be a great success. So he created a territory up there, created a sort of £400,000 turnover territory. And um, in the process of doing that, I realized that I'd stumbled across a good idea. His background was sports science. So again, that was chance. But I started recruiting more salesmen and immediately started to geographically cover the UK. Whereas any other small ergonomics businesses at the time stayed quite regional. So... uh, Quite why I felt it was important to have national coverage then, I'm not sure. But it, again, would prove to be another great move because it positioned us as the market leaders. Early on, we became quite the market leaders because we were the only ones that could service a national account. For instance, a bank like Barclays, use them as an example again. Um, they've been a big client all the way through. Um, so the recruitment process was sports science because they knew about anatomy and physiology. Um, they were probably fit and healthy, played sport, made sure it was a team sport, mm-hmm. didn't like any individual sports. So if it was golf or tennis or something like that, you nixed, you, know, you, you failed the next yeah. interview. <laughs> so as long as it was a team sport. Yeah. And, and they hadn't worked anywhere else. And they were doing sports science at uni and didn't really know what they were going to do with it. They thought they were going to be personal trainers or go and work at a football club or something. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody really thought of sales as a job. So that characteristic of individual proved to be hugely successful because they were driven, they were fun to be around, they were sporty, natural salesmen without knowing it. Yeah. Back to your point earlier, people buy from people. Yeah. So I created quite early on a really good network of, of staff that are all still in the business. You know, nobody's left, yeah. or we've had one or two, but you know, fundamentally the generalization is everybody is still there. And um, <clears throat> we peaked at 75 salesmen pre-COVID. And they, uh, I think 70 of those started straight out of university with a sports science degree. So, you know, once I got that, that, that um, formula, I stuck to it and it worked really well. So you then create regions and, of course, the competitive, the sales competitiveness, one region against another or one individual against another. That competitive instinct in them made them great salesmen and has helped drive the business. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll turn over 40 million this year. So, wow, and that—that's them. That is—that is what they do. Um, like you say, almost <laughs> again, like that stumbling across a, a formula like that, where you yeah, know, it just and uh, all thanks uh, to that first one, Colin. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. bonkers, Colin. Bonkers, <laughs> Colin. <laughs> but again, again, back to the back to the, the culture piece. Two hundred odd staff growing a business like yeah. that, and maintaining those people for such a long period of time as well. Hmm. That's down to that strong culture. 
real real sense of culture and I, and I think you know one one of the by no means the only way but um I was fully involved in managing them I used to be quite terrified at that you know I'd, I'd have sleepless nights before sales meetings and what have you because mm. I realized I had no qualification or experience to be doing this but I knew it was the right thing to do so you just take yourself out of the comfort zone each, at each level of step in the business growing and managing a sales meeting was the next level of discomfort for me and preparing an agenda what were we going to do what we, what, what value we're going to get out of out of it what topics we're going to discuss you know presenting new products inventing new products all those things um just just made it really um exciting in the end but but it also made us a team because i think I was a bit older than them. So, of course, they were looking up to me. And I've got nobody to look up to. So I'm looking down at the thing. They're looking at me. And I'm looking at them. And we'll do this together. We'll, we'll get through this. We'll do this together. But we had in, I think, about 2000, we did our first overseas Christmas party. And it became quite a legendary posturite thing. <laughs> so we went to Prague, all 18 of us. All blokes, actually, not very diverse. <laughs> um, and we went to Prague, saved 20 quid a month out of our own money, all of us, and did that and had a fantastic couple of days in Prague. And then every other year, we did it overseas. We did um, Krakow, Barcelona, Tallinn, Riga. Um, I'm probably missing one. And the last one we did was in Riga, 120 people. For a Friday night, Saturday night, all flew over from the various airports in the UK. They, a lot of them, the cheap airlines went to Riga. We had a stonking weekend in Riga. They, they were all pretty big weekends, but you know, from eighteen to thirty to fifty of us, seventy-five of us, you know, but one hundred and twenty. <laughs> Yeah, was like a, it's it, a fair party. It got out of control. Yeah, we took our own band. Um, <laughs> you know, it was chaos. I don't think there was much sleeping involved. I mean, we probably wasted some money on hotel rooms. Um, <laughs> but it was a riot. But they were talked about. They were talked about in the build-up to where the next one was going to be. And I always kept that quite secret. And yeah. I did all the planning for it. I did the recce's and everything. And then the the after-party discussions of all the shenanigans that had gone on created a real atmosphere real sense of we work for a great company you know if you're out there at Berwick and you're working in Posturite and you're chatting to your mates that work in an office in Eastbourne in an accountancy firm or something mm. you know well we, we you know we went to Barcelona for our Christmas party what <laughs> you know yeah, so yeah. there was a real it helped with recruitment it helped with retention it helped with morale um, and yeah you, you get to know your colleagues so when the chips are down and a customer's moaning at you down the phone you know, you, you, you call on your colleagues to help you out of a crisis and everybody's there for you, pull together. So we really did pull together as a team. So unwittingly, what seemed like a good idea in 2000, just to clear off to Prague for, you know, a boozy weekend, actually became an important cultural stepping stone of the growth of Posturite. Okay, I'm just going to say something about one of our sponsors, Riverval. The world of cars, vans and minibuses is often a pain point for many of us. The hassle of finding the right vehicle, let alone looking after it, are all more things to add to our lists as busy people. Rivervale's mission is to make motoring manageable, and that's why they provide leasing, purchasing, servicing and vehicle management. So whether you have one family car or a fleet of vans for your business, Rivervale are your trusted vehicle supplier. Visit www.rivervale.com. Rivervale.co.uk.
Okay, let's jump back to the podcast. That's, that's incredible. And I, I guess one thing as well I really take away, listen to you talk, and listen to you talk with it with so much passion as well about, about the business, but that as a leader, because you've gone through every step of the business, right, from building the products to yeah. going out selling it, and then, like you said, constantly pushing yourself out of your comfort yeah. zone, it strikes me as a leader that you're you're so much in part of that it's not like I'm, I'm the boss here and I've got to never ever felt do like you know that. what I mean that's what I mean I, from understanding <coughs> listening to you talk like you're just one of the team of course they need guidance and leadership yep. but you can offer that because you've been on the path to, to be able to do I'm keen like what again them traits as a, as a leader where does where does that come where does from where does it come from God you know I'd, I wish I could tell you. I don't know where it comes from. I guess some of that's either in you, but it has it has to um, almost be dragged out of you. Mm. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would have it latently in them if they were put into a position where they had to they had to show it and develop it. So I, I, I think there's more people that have got it than maybe realise. Mm. I just happened to sort of create this environment where we got this company, got a few products, started going, off we went. That it got sucked out of me as I went along, and I would I would never. The word entrepreneur is clearly overused sometimes, but I would never have called myself an entrepreneur until probably, I don't know, even 10 years ago. Mm. Um, it wasn't something I would have used to describe myself. Yeah. But in hindsight, I probably clearly was. Yeah, and, and especially, like, and, and the great thing about your story, I guess, is the fact that like, actually building something, you've come up, you've innovated, you've come up with an yeah. idea and built something and then built a business on the back of that yeah. idea and you've gone each stage I've got this thing I've gone and sold it and then like, that is the you know you know encapsulates what an entrepreneur really is yeah. I guess, you know well one that. of the most exciting phases was you know I think it came down to three phases posture right there was the early phase of just just survival building a brand and, and how, do, how do you look back like looking back at that time that survival period yeah to take me back there to that period was can, could, would you enjoy them that moment? Did you look at that journey? Was it? I can't say you enjoyed those early bits because the survivor was. You know, sometimes it was mum and I hugging each other, crying at you know, eleven o'clock at night because we didn't know how we were going to pay the bill the next day, and um, so some some of that was really painful, raw, proper raw. Um, much easier to look back on it with pride and enjoyment with Harry hindsight, <laughs> yeah. because you know you've then you've, you've come through and you actually made it work in the end. Mm. But I don't think anybody could say they enjoyed the pain of, of how difficult that side of it is. Money's horrible. To not have money is horrible. And uh, to not be able to pay the bills. And, you know, we were very old school, Mum and I, very proud. You don't want to be late paying for anything. And, you know, and if, you, if your word's good enough, if you said you're going to pay them, you're going to pay them. We'll just have to find a way how we do it. Um, so, yeah, enjoyment would be the wrong word for that. Um, but having got through that, and I, and I think it was around about that time and that SWOT analysis, that I would found myself saying to friends, you know, well, I think this might be, you know, what I'm going to, this is my career. This is probably what I'm, my, what's going to be my job for the rest of my life. Because I don't think I even felt that. that. Somewhere between eight and ten. Until ten I actually, years of and you still, it was until then. It could went, fail, you know. <laughs> we could go bust. It could fail. It might not grow enough. How is it ever going to pay me enough to sort of have a family and... Um, and, and a house and all that sort of stuff because, you know, I didn't have any of those things. 
Um, and I think that helped, by the way. I think not having any commitment. Starting young enough at 26 without those commitments, I think was a – I always used to think it to myself, that's an advantage because it's only me. I mean, I can sleep in a box on the, on the pavement if necessary. But, you know, um, you, you can't put that on your family. Um, so, so starting young enough with no commitments was, gave you that freedom to be, I wouldn't say reckless, um, back to that word blind faith again, you know. Um, just, just, just do it. Um, so, yeah, so that was the first phase. The, the, the second phase was then building the sales team. Um, and that was, you know, um, that once that momentum had started and I had sales directors and mm. regional managers and that sort of stuff, my focus then became on product development because I realized we'd built a business that had a brand, had a route to market, had a good sales team, but we didn't necessarily have any great value in the business. So the key then was um, to create own brand products because we'd been gone from being a 100% own brand when it was the posturite board to less than 20% own brand and we were just a distributor for other people's products. So I sort of, you know, chewed on that and um, I think one of the first ones we did was at a sales meeting, gave everybody a lump of clay um, in the graveyard shift after lunch to keep them awake and said, right, we've got an hour. You're going to design the perfect mouse, computer mouse. And so everybody played with the clay, and they made these shapes and, and, and what have you. Um, yeah, split them into small groups. Mm-hmm. And there must have been sort of, I don't know, eight groups, something like that. And then I made them all present to me at the end of the hour. So I'm there, and um, weird and wonderful shapes were presented to me. But there was a lot of goodness in, or there's bits of goodness in lots of them. And so I did a brief summary on the spot that day of the bits I thought I liked. And there were three or four common themes. Being vertical was a massive theme rather than flat because it's the more natural position, the handshake position for your wrist to be anatomically. So vertical was one big theme. Um, Buttons on the side, a base to slide around rather than small micro movements. So ergonomically, getting a little bit technical, but it's not that technical really. It's common sense. Bigger muscle movements are better than small movements where you're going to get musculoskeletal issues. So anyway, I, I, I immediately identified two or three key things, and then I took it away, and I then developed what became the penguin, um, ambidextrous vertical mouse. But that took another two years, you know, from those bits of clay to actually the first shipment from China, inevitably, apologies, <laughs> but you, you don't have any choice in these things sometimes. Yeah. If you want to make a computer mouse, you're only making it in China. Yeah. There's nowhere else in the world that you're making <laughs> yeah, that. Sure. Um, anyway, but so if two years from the clay to... You know, container load, boxed, you know, printed, done, working, tested, and for sale. Wow. Um, but that started the path of another half dozen own brand products. So we got back up to 80% own brand, even though we were growing size-wise. Mm-hmm. So, but and even today, we're, we're 80% own brand products. And that, that must be such a rewarding part of that one, to starting with clay and coming up with yeah. something. And seeing it develop into something else, and then going hugely and proud. It must be. Yeah. That's back to school woodwork. Yeah. You know that that, that that that's probably why I started. With it. I hadn't thought to start with that, but that's probably why I started with that. You know, because it, it, that theme ran through. Yeah. It's making things. 
<laughs> you go back to that time at school in that woodwork, mate, thinking, <laughs> who knew? Sitting here now, <laughs> who knew? With a 40 million pound turnover yeah. business. That's yeah. like, literally what an incredible, what an incredible story. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to touch still on some of the changes because you, you briefly mentioned in there COVID and that yep. period. Like, what, talk to me a little bit about some of the other challenges facing that. Where, where does COVID sit with that in, in your industry and that? Yeah, and quite that? clear. Um, so, you know, we were we're doing really well. I guess we were at about 30 million pre-COVID um, with the full 250 staff. Um, we had been, we'd, we'd sold 20%, this coincidence at the same percentage, to um, a private American company called Fellows. Um, they're the business machines, you know, shredders, laminators, mm-hmm. what have you. Pri- privately owned, 100 years old, out of Chicago. Um, a 40-year-old um, current uh, chief executive um, approached us, wanted to diversify into the healthy workplace. Mm-hmm. Were we for sale? And I said, well, yes, I see, I see an exit at some point, but I don't think we're worth what I would like to sell for. Mm-hmm. He said, that's no problem at all. So we chatted for a couple of years. He then bought 20% at, at a multiple uh, with a view to an option for the rest three years later, once we'd grown it to the size that I told him we could grow it to, mm-hmm. um, and then exit that way. Well, that time came uh, on the 10th of March, 2020, and they did exercise the option, uh, which was obviously two weeks before lockdown. So there was a lot going on around there, yeah. and um, they felt confident. I think, I think they were still being... Um, uh, hoodwinked by Trump that it was just a Chinese flu. <laughs> so America were a couple of weeks behind probably where Europe were. Mm. And the threat of lockdowns, I don't even think were mentioned even two weeks out, you know. Um, so they, they, they went through the deal. And I then was technically out. You know, um, I had no equity and I was not contracted to stay. Um, so, but I'd, I'd said in the process that I wanted to stay on as CEO. Mm. And they took me on my word. And I did. So to answer your question about COVID, A, we've sold. So we've had to deal with that. And the shareholders also, the other 12, have had a payday as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably with the exception of one, not enough to retire on. Um, But still, a nice payday. Mm -hmm. Um, The turnover halved in the first month of lockdown. so the top line halved, and it was like, wow, what are we going to do here? So I, I lent on the experience of the, um, was it 2007, the July bombings, two, two bombings in London, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereby we were about 70 people at that stage, and um, our turnover halved in that month, um, and I made 10% of the people redundant. So I made seven redundancies, which I'd never done in posture. We, we've always only really just grown. Mm. But that early call then proved to be great. You cleared out a little bit of dead wood, motivated those that stayed. Financially, it made sense. And then, obviously, it picked up after those July bombings. But one didn't know. You know you've know, got half your turnover. You've got to make cuts. So I had that reeling in my mind about COVID. So I suggested to fellows, I said, look, I don't think our 75 salesmen are going to – it's going to be a different world. So I suggest we make 50 redundant. Uh, and this was in May, probably, 
April or May, yeah, somewhere around there, that I had that thought to make an early tough call. And I know there was furlough and stuff like that, but I just felt that, you know, think, you know, already Zoom and Teams were being more widely used than they had been before. And I couldn't see how face-to-face selling was going to bounce back in a hurry. And also, just financially, you know, our top line's halved. We've got to do something here. So anyway, fellow said they they were great. They, they, I mean, they're still great and they're still supportive. And I'm still non-executive chairman. Um, but they said, if that's what you think, I said, well, if it was my company still, that's what I would do. And they said, well, that's good enough for us. So we did, unfortunately, very sadly for them. But we made 50 of the sale field sales guys, you know, redundant. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, in that climate, um, people took, people realised it was a it was a it was a world crisis. Mm-hmm. So there was no pushback. It was accepted, and you know, I think we we paid fair, um, and we did it from the bottom up. So we were now left with the top twenty five, mm-hmm. who I felt, yeah, you know, we 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 argued the toss as to whether it should be from the top or the bottom, yeah, sure, <laughs> or a combo. Sure. But I felt if one was going to be now selling over over screens, you needed the experience and the confidence and the age and the ability to communicate and. All those good things. So we kept we kept the top end as it happens. Wow. But that was a really, really tough decision. Yeah. But we then also, at the same time, pivoted the business to home working. Um, yeah. Because of course that suddenly was a new new expression. Yeah. You know, home working came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and that required, you know, equipment at home, some sort of desk, chair, what have you. And our customer base has always been the sort of the FTSE two fifty, the higher higher end. Yeah, sure. And so the, the higher end of our customer base were buying equipment or giving a budget to the people that they were asking, their employees they were asking to work from home. So we very quickly got back on the top line to the same level of turnover. I think by about June or July, our top line had bounced back. So we, we were quite a quick U, or more a V than a U almost, um, which, I mean, there were challenges. Margins suddenly squeeze. You, uh, home working equipment lower value less margin um so so the bottom line was challenged but the top line got there fairly quickly and um and that's now that theme's continued you know so the the hybrid home working in some ways you could say our market size almost doubled because you've got the equipment in in a mainstream office and then you've got the equipment for the for the home working so we quickly saw it as an opportunity that you know to, to help out our traditional customer base mm. and expand the size of our potential marketplace. I, I wouldn't want you to think it was easy. No, no, no. I wouldn't you think no. we've I, had I'm, it away sure. because it's not, but it certainly could have been a lot worse. There are some industries you can think of where it was 10 times worse yeah, yeah, yeah. or catastrophic. Yeah, and look how many businesses did, didn't make it through, and which is really sad and it's, yeah. you know, it's a difficult. But I guess it's, again, it's just... A sign of just trying to be. Look, look, there's a problem. What, what's the solution? And yep. Trying to find that. Trying to find that solution. I think that people, whether a lot of businesses, pivoted, and 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 you've got to. You've got to look mm. at something different. Whatever that looks like. I'm keen, like just with, with you and your, because especially being in that position, you didn't need to to yep. come in and and do that. But I, I'm assuming. Part of it is your baby that you've built up that you still hundred percent that that would be a be a be a key thing for, for you in your mindset to go actually oh, 
Yeah. Well, and the loyalty to the people in the of business. Co- of, of course, of course. You know, it, it's no point in me having a, a, a payday and going off into the sunset, yeah. you know, and letting down my friends that have got me there. Yeah. And, you know, genuinely friends. Yeah. So, it, do you know, it still feels like my baby. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't sure. mean to be, if fellows are listening, I don't mean to be disrespectful to them, but <laughs> it's still mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So it genuinely really does. Um, but it was more just actually all the people in the business. Yeah. So it's, they, they've got families, livelihoods, careers. They've got another decade to go. You know, I'm not going to just run away from that. So I, I love keeping an eye on it and where I feel I can add some value or assistance or guidance and in those early days, we really did run it. I mean, for the first couple of years, I was a—I was probably more of a CEO in those two years once COVID arrived than I had been in the previous probably five. Wow. You know, I had such a great you know senior management team that were running the business really. Mm. Um, so yeah, I really really got stuck in, and then then I realised you know once things settled down that CEO is the wrong title because I'm not really behaving like that anymore. Mm. I'm. Um, Chairman is okay. Non-exec chairman's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The word that comes like listening to you talk like that. Word that I, I use quite a lot. Probably one of my key values in business. Something I'd always said. Whatever I do in business, one word that I always want to do something. Do it. Do it with integrity. Mm. That's the word that comes to mind when I hear you talk. Oh, well, that's, like, that's a like, privilege. Like, nice to hear that. Like that. Just like you said. You know. Is your baby and you built it up and you done, but you you've done you've done what you needed to do to get it to a stage and you've come away now and there's, yep. there isn't that responsibility for you to do that but to look on look on that and go oh, I've got to look after them people who have helped me get there oh definitely I've got a <clears throat> this is my baby I'm not going to let this I'm going to jump back in I'm mm. going to make sure that it gets to that next stage and helping it yep. to get there and obviously clearly it was the right decision like you said a tough decision but making that from the experience from 2007 learning from that yeah and again i'm going to take that but that is such a strong message for me for anyone listening and people within business that integrity is if we can well, keep it's a good word yeah no i'm, I'm I, I, I like you associated me with that because mm. that's that's how i feel mm. and uh and it's genuine and you yeah. can't fake that yeah Exactly that. I, mean, I still feel now there's some big decisions we've got to make now. You know, yeah. are we outgrowing the premises? You know, where do we take the business going forward? Mm-hmm. You know, I like being involved in those discussions. I chair the board meetings, okay. and I like being involved in those discussions. Yeah. It's, a, it's a privilege to do so, but I, I only I, I see it as making sure their livelihoods continue to progress yeah. and their careers continue continue to progress. We talked just over the last, the last sort of twenty minutes. We talked a little. Bit, you mentioned and you alluded about failure. Yeah, um, and not really not wanting to fail. But what what is your relationship like with failure? Go back to the insurance thing. Did you see that as a failure when you come out of the insurance thing, or was that your decision that you made? Uh, Just talk to me about your relationship with <coughs> it. How, how you... Well, I think I think I think it had to have been a failure because I, I wasn't able to sort of impose my um, capabilities mm. into the market. You know. Um, it, yeah, I had this idea that I'd seen another broker do, big broker, linking the direct side of the business to the reinsurance side of the business, and they created a big product there that uh, you could then underwrite through the reinsurance if you if you wrote the direct stuff. So it, it was it was utilising some big thinking. I thought, well, that's a good idea. My company's got direct and reinsurance. We need to do that. Mm. So I went off at 
like tangents and I started talking to the direct people, got the underwriters in the market to sort of write a reinsurance program around it. Had it all mapped out in my mind, but it was just not the way the directors that actually managed me wanted to go. So ultimately, yes, it was a failure. Uh, I was not able to sort of see that through. And... Um, I, I, I guess the, the, what I really want to get to is like you, you, you then go into the to posture I'm running that own business with the fact that the reason people don't start sometimes is because they fear failure. Yep. But you come from that and still you've gone and you've stuck with something for so long believing that you're not going to believe I can't allow this to fail. Well, I find a way. You'll find a, I think yeah. it's the fact that I find a way. And so I think, is it a male trait? I don't know if that's sexist, but I think, you know, if, if, if your wife says to you that there's a problem, I'll, I'll fix it. I'll find a way of fixing it. And, um, and I suppose there was an element of that in the business. You know, if we've got a problem, I'll, fi- I'll find a way around it. And if we've got no money, I'll go and borrow it from a friend. If, um, if our product's not good enough, I'll design a, a better one you know, that is. Mm. And if I've designed something that actually doesn't sell very well, that's the ultimate test of whether you've designed a good product or not. <laughs> and we've had a few of those. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember I think called a tri-right footrest um, underneath the desk. You know, I thought it was clever. Three sides of a triangle, different sizes, mm. gave you different heights for your footrest. I thought it was a, I thought it was a fantastic product. And I told anybody that would listen, it was a great product. I told the sales team at sales <laughs> meetings it was brilliant. I think we sold about fifty, and uh, ultimately, that's a failure. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the key, especially in your industry. There's got to be that element of I, I, I use it quite a lot. It's been quite become quite a thing where you know, especially within that, within technology, f- fail fast, right? Yeah. Fail, but fail fast and learn. So it is that you're gonna because if you're not innovative and you don't try it, some things yeah. are gonna not work out. But it's learning from that. Actually, that didn't work. But I bet if we looked at how many products have come out of something that's failed, yeah. but you've maybe turned something else into, and, and then no, it's if, gone. You, if you don't have a few failures, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's as simple as that. And uh, I, so I, I wasn't afraid of that kind of failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, um, sure, sure. That's, that's a different definition of failure, I think. Yeah. So I didn't mind when a, when a product went. I was angry. I was annoyed with myself. <laughs> and I, actually, to start with, I was annoyed with the salesman. They're not selling it. Yeah. So, so once I once I got over that and realised it probably wasn't their fault actually, yeah. um, I was like, well, fine, move on, next one. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that was never Brilliant. a problem. Look, running a business as long as you have and being like you mentioned that early stage of not um, obviously not having family, so you, it, it was just you. And that yep. was okay. That, but talk to me then about that later part where. You are still growing it, but then you have got kids at a young yep. age. And talk to me about work-life balance. What does that look? What did that look like for you? At that I, I was pretty clear about that. So, um, yes, in, in, in offering them the chance to come in, uh, and they come in, one of the things I remember saying, even at, in that process, as they were handing me the checks, that some of this is, I don't want, on a Wednesday afternoon, when I'm watching a sports match, you thinking, where's the boss? You know, he's off off again, you know, with the kids. Or, or if I have a game of golf, you know, oh, God, he's on the golf course again. I don't want you to think like that. You know, I, I want to be able to have a, a degree of degree of balance. So um, I think I got that right, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the quality of the people that were prepared to take. You know, you've, got to, you've, you've got to empower um, the, 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 the good employees. 
um, no point talking about it and then it's still being a dictatorship and every decision comes through you know in a particularly in a in a, in a very vertical organization mm-hmm. I, I gave people complete carte blanche within their remits to make decisions and do that I said you're, you're never gonna I'm never gonna give you a bollocking for making a, making um, a wrong decision mm-hmm. you're more likely to get a bollocking for not making a decision because mm-hmm. a business can't run as it grows without people further down the line making decisions so and I, and I genuinely felt that as well. So, and on the whole, I, I, you know, I, I doubt even on one hand I can name any bad decisions that, that most of them made. Yeah. You know, they, we all knew what we were doing. They all made good decisions. They're, and it's yeah. all customer-centric. It was always, you know, the answer is yes, what's the question? Mm. That was another of our real mantras. And it probably got us in trouble later on because as we grew and you get more process-driven in a business, the exceptions and the outliers become very hard to manage. You know, you need more and more process because of the volume and the scale of the size of the business, which doesn't interest me at all. And uh, probably quite a good thing I became removed (laughs) from the process because that is definitely not my skill set. But I recognize that you do need to. Whereas in, in my day, literally, if the customer wanted a different an adaption to a product I'd go back and I'd adapt it just for that customer I mean goodness knows how much money I probably lost doing that <laughs> but you had a happy customer and it created a reputation and it kicked us on to the next level and people chose to use Posturite as opposed to XYZ for their ergonomic solutions in the workplace because of the service they got and um, maintaining the service levels is, is key Cause that that can be lost sometimes. Like people think I've got saying they want to grow and they keep going, but actually then get to a point where that level of customer service. Is yeah, not there. And, I, I, and I appreciate as companies get bigger, like you said, there's got to be processes put in place. Yep. Uh, get that. But actually, that level of customer service or a level, yep. high level of customer service has got to be. Something. I think we've been out of sync. We're not perfect at all, yeah. and our customer service hasn't always kept pace with the with the size of our business yeah. and so we've been we've been out of sync a few times um <clears throat> i would i think at the moment not just saying i think we're in a good spot mm. but um in the last three or four years our customer service has definitely been behind mm. and not so much throwing more people at it actually our processes mm. so we've you know we've had some good people come into the business improve us and it's needed it but you're always sort of like leapfrogging one step and up and then another one back and um try trying to have a smooth run through i doubt there's many businesses that have a smooth run through (laughs) but but living through those blips is quite painful because you know you're letting a customer down you know and and, and it it galls us all to sort of know that a complaint comes in or the phone or email or returned order because it was too late or whatever it was you hate that as a small private business you hate that you know it's so interesting i know we spoke briefly before but us um so I, I interviewed Richard Skerritt a little while. Yeah, ago. Richard. Oh, Richard's a good friend. Yep. And um, but he mentioned something very similar. He said, mm. "Like I still now get upset if I know that, and I'll still maybe make a call if I need yep. to. Like I still that that relationship side of it. If I lose a customer, yep. for whatever reason, it still hurts. Yeah, because yeah. it's again back to your. Oh, really? I think somebody's speaking ill of posturite because yeah, yeah. they've had a bad experience. Yeah. It's like a dagger. Yeah, sure, you know, sure. it really feels like that, yeah. you know, because uh, 
it just would never have been like that. Much easier when you're smaller, much easier when you're you know, at the coalface and in control of it and yeah, you know, yeah, able yeah. to you know, smooth it over and make it jump in the car and go and d- deliver it. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> sure. And I would do all those things. So much harder with scale, yeah, yeah, but course. still hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Geo. Geo runs a scarf company. Geo doesn't see the need for telecoms. Everybody uses mobiles now. But can a mobile really be a business phone? Geo is having coffee with a client, Gabby. Well, actually, Geo prefers acacia leaf tea. But what happens when someone calls? It could be a big new deal. Surely it would be rude to take the call? But many people hate leaving messages. They may just call a competitor instead. What can Geo do? The answer is simple. Turn the mobile into a business phone. With the GoGiraffe app, Geo can quickly transfer the call. Or before the meeting, Geo can simply use the app to divert calls. No more missed calls, lost deals or unhappy customers. Turn your mobile into a business phone today. GoGiraffe. Well, look, I'm coming sort of towards to all the end. I'm keen to, when any entrepreneur, when they talk about their journey, um, we set out, and some people have got certain goals, and we, I've spoke to Olympic champions on here, and like Sally Gannell's been on people. We, we set ourselves a goal. We need to do that in business, mm. right? We set ourselves a goal. I'm keen to look at that point where you do sell. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned in, in March 2020, you sold the whole company. Just talk to me about that feeling at that point. How did you feel at that moment? Was it that euphoria moment? I've built this for the last 30 years and I've got to this point. Now, look, I've achieved everything I'd set out to achieve. Talk it was emotionally you. shattering. Really? Oh, cry my eyes out. Really? Absolutely cry my eyes out. You know, on the one hand, I took a screenshot of the bank balance, which I sent to mum. <laughs> but on the other hand... It was just, I don't know whether it was all those pent-up years of pain, you know, to get to, uh, what's success? You know, let's say in this instance, the money's the success. But all, the years of pain and the, the things you know you've been through to get, get to that point, whether it's an emotional release, I, I, I guess it probably is. Mm. But yeah, far from sort of a euphoric dancing on the, dancing on the ceiling mm. moment, actually, it's quite a quite a strange feeling um anyway you get over that fairly quickly (laughs) and you do have your dancing on the ceiling moment there's no doubt about that um but also you realize what's important in life and um it's not just going out and now spending some of that hard-earned cash Mm. you know that still i don't get any pleasure from doing that i've got more pleasure in diversifying into other business startups and I've now got maybe eight or nine new little ventures that I'm, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm the line of credit and I'm the sort of non-exec chairman and mentor. But I recognize in those startups the same enthusiasm and path that those, those often friends or people I get, to get introduced to are going to be taking and going on and the excitement of that buzz. So it's almost like a replication of the journey that I've had mm. and the excitement I've had doing that that I can't let go of. And I'm getting just sucked into a few of those. <laughs> and I love them. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. But it, because ultimately, 
ultimately we all need a purpose. Yeah, well, there you go. It's only games of golf or whatever, or sitting out reading a book or whatever it is you like to do, albums you want to listen to, whatever it is. You know, I I think I've been reasonably successful as a business person. So probably it's no coincidence that, you know, I'm replicating that a little bit more. I never allow myself to get distracted before with Posturite. I felt I was in control of my destiny, which is what I'd wanted to be. Um, and any other distractions from that were futile because actually this is what I know I can control and make a success or failure of. Whereas now I've got a bit, bit of free time to do that, a little bit of you know finance behind me. You can now indulge in those things and replicate some of those same um, principles, business principles, business practices, mm-hmm. Hopefully, cut a few corners for those those ones I'm involved with, and yeah. try and avoid a few of the pitfalls that are always out there, yeah. um, and fast track them through, you know, to another level of success for themselves. Amazing. You mentioned success, and again, that the the, the tagline of the the podcast has become helping the world to see success differently because mm. we, we talk about, and I'm still convinced actually that. People's success in society, we still measure it based on someone's financial status. Yeah, and that's that's the way that it's just natural. That's how we measure business, and we we do yeah. that. But I'm keen. You, you sit in front of me now, financially very successful in that sense. Um, built a business and talked about the times and the tough periods and all of that to get to where you've yeah. got to. But where you've been, where you are right now, where you're going, what, how do you define success? Well. Um, the late, great Nick Ascroft, um, my best friend probably, mm. um, had his theory of it was a third family, third business, and a third charity. And that was one of the things anybody that remembers Nick well will have probably heard him just talk about how he defined his breakdown of his time. And I, I wouldn't say it's um, something I stick to, you know, <laughs> I measure that mm. to the nearest percent. Um, but the family I'm pretty comfortable with, you know, two, two grown-up kids that I have a lot of fun with, my wife. Um, holiday wells, ski, and, and and what have you. The business side, you know, I still feel pretty engaged with Posturite. Mm. So there's still not a day that I don't think about the business or have some sort of input into it, even though I'm non-executive in the business now. Mm. And the charity, um, I'm chairman of East Sussex Vision Support. Um, I'm involved with Children with Cancer Fund in Eastbourne. Um, and almost on the charity side, the mentoring of those startups. Um, Mm. is that charity, is that business but there's a split of my time that I feel quite comfortable with Mm. and I would say that's how I measure my success have I got the balance right in my life of what I'm doing and what I want to do that I'm pretty happy with that Um, I don't think anyone is overweighted so um, that's how I would measure success love that balance, balance is the key yeah yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Because, like you said, and I don't, uh, it makes me sound every time I talk about it, it makes it sound like you know that, that, that there's something wrong with getting that fine. And there's nothing. Of course, you know, we've got to make money to survive. And actually, yeah. sometimes look at by creating financial wealth for yourself in that sense, you're actually able to have more of an impact and influence on the world yeah. by helping other people through mentorship, through investment, through. Yeah financial support whatever that looks like but you're able to to achieve that yeah and that then goes back to the fulfillment and purpose piece right? yeah you sleep, i sleep very easily um, and that 
that is all we can hope for. <laughs> all I, you can I hope guess. for. And, and your health. <clears throat> you can never ignore the fact, you know. Yeah. Enjoy your good health while you got it. Yeah. Never know how long you got that for. Yeah. So uh, fingers crossed and touch wood and all those good things. Yeah. Well, tell me, um, what, what, what does the future hold for you? Oh, it's a difficult one. Um, I think it's a bit more of the same. Mm. You know, I'm 60. Uh, I feel that's, you know, not not too old not to be able to enjoy all the activities. Yeah. So uh, a lot of travel, a um, lot of sport still, a lot of golf, a lot of skiing. Um, I'd like to see some of these new startups through to a level of success, however they want to define their success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to see that. Uh, I'd like to be around long enough and healthy long enough to enjoy the family for you know a good good time longer. Grandchildren would be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would, I'd like to think it's a decade of uh, more of the same, please. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know I don't don't really want anything to sort of change that too much. Easy. Honestly, mate, I'm really really grateful for your time and and coming on and sharing your. Listen, fascinating, inspirational story. And what's so great, like you listen to you still talk about postural, but talk about your journey with so much passion and enthusiasm. And it's for, for I guess, for myself, for people listening like on their their journey to whatever their success or their business their business journey that they take so much from this and see what you've achieved, and not just the financial success, but done it with with integrity mm. and done all the things that you've done to achieve it is truly truly inspiring so I'm, I'm honestly really grateful for your time and coming on and sharing that's it very us. kind of you Sam I thoroughly enjoy talking to you and uh, I appreciate it amazing and um, that as they say sir is a wrap <laughs> it's a wrap it's a wrap